Hello, my field daisies. Welcome to the 10th episode of Daisyish Days, the podcast. We have reached a milestone. We have made it to 10 episodes. Wow, I'm, I, I'm, I'm actually really proud of myself. I know I've taken a couple weeks off now, but yeah, I feel like I've gotten into the groove of writing a script, researching, recording, figuring out the intro song, the outro song, editing, uploading it to my blog, getting it on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts, all of that. I'm slowly starting to get better at turning this content out and like I said in the first episode of Daisyish Days, the reason why I wanted to start this podcast was for um, one, to create um, content that you'd actually enjoy and two, so I think this is easier than me writing a blog post every day and uploading it. Um, that's what Daisyish Days was in the beginning. It was a blog and now it's a podcast and I'm finally starting to get the hang of it. And so yeah, just bear with me. If I take a couple of weeks off, I do. I'm going to try very hard to release an episode every Wednesday. Today is Thursday. The episode's on Thursday. It's whatever. And so that brings me into today's life lesson, which is, um, is, is, is one, don't be too hard on yourself in terms of not making deadlines, but two, try to keep up with your deadlines. Cause like for this, for me, I am, I am my own boss. I can, if I want to take two weeks off, I can. In terms of if you have a regular job or if you are in school and there are set hard deadlines, um, I would recommend, this is something I do not do, by the way, it's something I really need to do. I would recommend setting a deadline for yourself. For example, if you have an essay to write, set the first deadline to be two weeks before the actual deadline so you have time to edit and time to really create the best work possible. Because for me, I did not do that in college. I literally, I literally wrote my essays the weekend before typing up until the deadline, printing it out at the library, and running across campus to turn it in. That was my life in college, and it was absolute hell. And so if I can say anything is to please don't do what I did. And yeah, even when I went off and um, started doing, started working and stuff like that, um, there would be deadlines that I had to make. And my problem is I always... um, underestimate how much time or is over or under I want to say I underestimate how much time I need basically I say oh you want this powerpoint done I can get it done in two days when in actuality it will probably take a week for me to get done so set realistic deadlines make sure that you meet your realistic deadlines because at the end of the day being finished is done is better than being perfect being finished is better than being perfect. I have to reiterate that because we can pick and prod at our projects, our paintings, our essays, our presentations, our budget reports, etc. But at the end of the day, um, it's not going to be your ideal version of perfect because we are human and we are nitpicky and we always think it can be better. But yeah. And so that's something that I am really, really working on. I am your classic definition of a procrastinator and I'm trying not to be. And so, 
yeah, you guys, I hope you guys can relate to that. And I really wish you luck to all your procrastinators out there. I feel you. I understand your problem. And I am hoping that I can inspire you to change because I am really trying hard not to be a procrastinator anymore. It really hinders your work. Um, it makes it so, it's like I only work under that pressure of a deadline. And so the thing I ended up creating, it's like I spend countless nights not sleeping, trying to create this product and it just ends up not being what I even envisioned it. And so, yeah, it's better just to get it done. Y'all just get it done and set deadlines for yourself. Don't wait until the last minute to do what you need to do. And with that being said, this actually is a really good transition into what I want to talk about today, which is music festivals, the infamous failed fire festival, and the newly anticipated Woodstock festival, its 50th anniversary that is supposed to take place this August, and it has been, is being dubbed as the next fire festival because they are having so much trouble in terms of locking down a venue, investors, the artists that are supposed to perform at the music festival. It is an, it is a crap show. It is a very um, reminiscent quality of Fire Festival. So I will be diving deep into the, the, I guess, the specifics and the nitty gritty of what is happening with um, Woodstock, what happened with Fire Festival, and why I think it's not necessarily going to be the next Fire Festival. So yeah, without further ado, let's roll the intro music. Gibson for that wonderful intro song and hello again my field daisies. So today's topic is going to be music festivals, uh, mainly the Woodstock 50th anniversary festival that is supposed to take place this August. Uh, but there have been a ton of complications which I will get into and it is being deemed the next fire festival. So for those of you who don't know, fire festival was a failed luxury music festival that was supposed to take place um, in April and May of 2017, uh, but it turned out to be a extremely, extremely huge disaster where uh, people were left stranded in the Bahamas and the so-called bungalows that they were supposed to be staying in along the beach turned out to be a natural disaster tents that were wet and the food ended up being uh, notoriously, I don't know if you've seen on Twitter, um, basically it was a piece of bread and a piece of American cheese that you find in those little silicone wrappers. Uh, so yeah, not so luxury as they proclaimed. Um, Fire Festival was founded by Billy McFarland, uh, a renowned, now renowned con artist. Uh, he's 27 years old. He started his first company was called Magnesis. If you guys don't know, um, it was an invitation only charge card. So basically, it was a credit card that he kind of sold or geared the uh, target audience to. Uh, millennials, New York millennials, um, who were pretty well off, but, um, wanted that cool exclusive factor of a black card. And he 
it was a pretty, I guess, revolutionary concept in terms of uh, it allow it. It mainly had like this clubhouse, I think, that was in New York that where young people could come and meet and network. And so, yeah. But it turned out to be a, a hoax, an extreme failure. The people that were at this so-called clubhouse were not the people that they necessarily marketed in their advertisements. And yeah, I think they ended up getting sued by the building as well for holding these huge parties there that uh, destroyed the property. So that is where Billy McFarlane started off. So with Fire Festival, which is he is the CEO, um, he basically did the um, she did the festival to uh, promote Fire's app, which was supposed to be uh, an app where you could book music talent so it's sort of like cameo uh where you can book uh comedians or social media influencers or whatever impersonators and they will record a short video for you and stuff like that fire app was supposed to be a music talent app for really huge artists basically almost a tinder vibe where you could swipe on a artist that you want to play at your cousin's bar mitzvah and if they accept you then you guys get matched and uh it was it was a pretty cool idea i have to say but that's kind of the thing with billy mcfarland's ideas they all sound cool on the surface but um in terms of practical practicality and implementation it did not necessarily really work. And so the reason why Fire Festival was so big was the fact that so many people believed that it was going to happen. And that is mainly because the event was promoted on Instagram by social media influencers, including socialite model Kendall Jenner, as well as models Bella Hadid and stuff like that. So in their trailer for Fire Festival, I'll never forget seeing the trailer in 2017. Um, it was basically... Um, basically it was these models and they were running on the beach and on these cruise, not cruise ships, but like, um, little like yachts and they were, um, enjoying the water and swimming. And it was this beautiful, beautiful trailer that made it seem like it was going to be an exclusive party, an exclusive music festival with, um, basically, you can chill on the beach with Kendall Jenner. And these models and social media influencers, um, I would have to say that the social media marketing team for Fire Festival really did an extremely good job in terms of creating digital buzz over this festival. So they had this idea where they were going to get all these influ- <laughs> influencers to post at the same time a plain, simple, orange square on Instagram and basically so there's there's two documentaries that are out for Fire Festival which is how I know I guess so much about it like in 2017 I really wasn't paying attention to it until it blew up but now that these documentaries have come out on Hulu and Netflix I've really got to know the whole history of it all um, if you haven't seen these documentaries I highly recommend it um, if you if you just want to watch one I would I would recommend Hulu, the Hulu one over the Netflix one. I watched both. Uh, Hulu is definitely better. Uh, Netflix told the story, but it was in a more sensationalized reality show drama way. For example, um, 
one of the people that was working like I think he was like the event producer or something Andy King there's like this crazy story he told on the Netflix documentary where he had Billy basically asked asked him to perform oral sex on a customs agent in return for getting water to the festival site so there's this whole issue of getting it through customs and the guy he didn't end up blowing the guy but he was basically like I'll let you get this through but you you owe me the money ASAP so that was sort of the vibe I guess that Netflix was giving off when it was told the story about the fire festival these these crazy crazy allegations and facts that were true but um I would have to say the Hulu documentary kind of gives a more holistic view in terms of I guess what really happened and gives like kind of both sides because Billy is in the documentary as well as his girlfriend and it kind of situated Fire Festival in the context of what is happening today in the digital age. So um, like I said before with the whole social media thing uh, all of these influencers posted a orange square at the same time and it stopped it it stopped the whole social media track right because with Instagram when you're scrolling through your feed it all is kind of a blur you don't necessarily spend time looking really hard at one post and so the idea was to stop the tracks of social media with this this intriguing plain color thing that like hits everyone feed everyone's feed at once because a lot of people follow a lot of the same social media influencers and so yeah that's how fire festival got its start that's how they got people to follow their instagram page and that's how they got people to pay extraordinary amounts for tickets and wristbands that uh (laughs) this sounds so crazy i cannot believe they did this but basically wristbands that were charged wristbands money wristbands and they said that was the only way you're going to be able to buy anything at the festival so you had to load money on these wristbands it's it's insane it's 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 absolutely insane what they did and it's absolutely insane that people believed it But that is, I guess, just showing the power of social media and the power of these influencers to really legitimize something that um, in, in, in all retrospect is not if, if you look really look at all the facts and the history of it now that it's two years later it really did not make any sense but no one really cared because this image this idea this marketing of this festival was so powerful that it got tons of people to believe in it even when it was starting to sound sketchy even though on the day of blink 182 backed out of the festival people still like the the um I also I I really dug deep into this whole fire festival thing and there is this one podcast I think it was I don't remember his name but it's this um wrestler who has a podcast and he did an interview with uh, one of the attendees of the fire festival and he uh, became kind of famous because he vlogged the entire thing he wasn't necessarily a youtuber but he just felt like showcasing fire festival from not necessarily an influencer side a person that uh went and bought the ticket with his friends and went to the festival so 
they were talking about how it was interesting in the podcast he was saying that social media didn't necessarily have that powerful alluring effect that uh, I guess both the Netflix and the Hulu documentary and a lot of articles sort of portray the the overwhelming power of social media and how that tricked people and that really legitimized everything but this is of course only one perspective of one uh, music festival goer he said that uh, he wasn't necessarily really caught up with the whole social media marketing thing it just I, I suppose that the social media kind of gotten him uh, introduced the whole idea and that him and his group of friends they always went to music festivals and when they looked at the website and the price the early bird price was pretty low and the fact that uh, all these inclusive things it just made it sound really fun and really um worth the money i guess and so that's how he got bought into the whole thing and so yeah so that is one thing to say i guess that social media uh isn't necessarily the all like it it definitely plays a part in legitimizing a concept a product a brand but there has to be a lot of other things as well like a really good website um, that looks legitimate and modern, a CEO that is charismatic and confident and knows what he is doing or pretends to know what he is doing. There are a lot of factors that come into play when uh, conning people or creating this extreme hoax or scheme. Uh, So it it definitely does say a lot about the digital age, how much social media influenced uh, ticket goers and people to buy into this whole um, idea. I mean, it's it's crazy because when the whole event came out in 2017, when those orange squares were posted, uh, many of these models and influencers did not initially disclose how much they've been paid to, to uh, post these orange squares, but it later came out that Kendall Jenner, I don't know if this is true, but allegedly allegedly made uh, uh, 250k on that one Instagram post. I mean, it's it's absolutely insane. And the fact that, so in my opinion, um, the fact that, so social media, yes, it does have a really big influence. I definitely think that it did have a big influence in legitimizing Fire Festival, but I feel like Billy, in terms of being able to influence investors and get them to buy into this idea, to give him the millions of dollars that he needed to go to the Bahamas, shoot the trailer, pay these influencers, um, also says a lot about why and how this thing became the big disaster that it became. Um, Now, in March 2018, uh, McFarland pleaded guilty to one count of wire fraud to defraud investors and ticket holders, a second count to defraud a ticket vendor, uh, while out on bail oh yeah this story too this is this this really takes the cake so after the whole fire festival thing um came about he got you know arrested and he was basically on out on bail in terms of um you know what they were going to do to him in terms of justice and the fire festival while he was out on bail he basically came up with another scheme to take the fire festival email list and get this and basically try to sell them tickets to the met gala or a beyonce 
concert, etc. Being like, we have the exclusive blah, 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 blah. Contact us. You can buy tickets to all these events. First of all, you can't get tickets to the Met Gala. You have to be invited to something like that. Um, so yeah, it was a big scheme while he did while he was out on bail. And so he definitely had to pay. Um, yeah, he had to plead guilty for a second count of that, which amazes me. And the Hulu documentary is kind of talking a lot about his psycho, his psyche and his psychology and how uh, when you're a con artist, I guess, um, I don't know if they necessarily called him a sociopath or I don't think he's necessarily a sociopath either but the fact that once a con artist always a con artist kind of thing and even when he gets out of jail I think he's going I think he's in jail for six years Um, when he comes out I don't know what's going to happen he might (laughs) people are gonna have to be wary of his next venture I don't necessarily see him getting a job at McDonald's um he probably is going to try to start another venture and that will be an interesting thing to see and talk about in six years if this podcast is going on for six years uh definitely keep you updated on billy mcfarland um but yeah so um since he was sentenced to six years of prison order to forfeit 26 million dollars uh u.s dollars and then the organizers um also got um um at least eight uh, lawsuits and a lot of there was a class action lawsuit uh, seeking more than a hundred million in damages and the cases basically accused organization organizers of defrauding ticket buyers which they definitely did um, this is all from basically watching the documentaries and wikipedia by the way so yeah definitely check out the documentaries if you haven't i'm sure most of you probably all of you have heard about the fire festival and now um woodstock uh is trying to do a 50th anniversary for their music festival um so woodstock it first came out in um 1969 in august Uh, For those of you who don't know, it was basically conceived as three days of peace and music, uh, hippie love, whatever. And so, yeah, the idea of Woodstock was to basically make enough money from the event to build a recording studio near the artsy New York town of Woodstock. And so when the organizers of the uh, festival, they couldn't necessarily find an appropriate venue in the town itself. So the promoters, they decided to hold the festival on a 600 acre dairy farm in Bethel, New York, uh, 50 50 miles from Woodstock. And so uh, the weekend that the festival arrived, uh, they sold a total of 186 thousand tickets and expected no more than uh 200,000 people to show up but by friday night uh thousands of early arrivals uh were pushing against the entrance gates and uh they because they were afraid that they couldn't control the crowds they just decided to open the concert to everyone free of charge so this is a crazy crazy story and apparently close to half a million people attended Woodstock 50 years ago um, they jammed the roads in Bethel with eight miles of traffic and just to put that into perspective um, in terms of a per day attendance of Coachella which is 
the, the big, big festival these days. I did a podcast about Coachella and people faking going to Coachella. You can uh, listen to that as well. But yeah, and uh, the per day attendance for Coachella is 99,000. Uh, so a hundred, less, just shy of a hundred thousand. Um, and yeah, so Woodstock, they, they expected 200K. They got half a million. And yeah, surprisingly, there were not that many episodes of violence, although one teenager was accidentally run over and killed by a tractor and another died from drug overdose. But in terms of that, just uh, that is a small, small number um, compared to what it could have been, the disaster it could have been. And so, yeah, conceived as three days of peace and music. And later, the term Woodstock Nation would be used as a general term to describe the youth counterculture of the 1960s. Um, so yeah, it was, it was an iconic festival. They had classic rock and roll icons, Jimi Hendrix, The Who, Janis Joplin, The Grateful Dead, Jefferson Airplane, Nash and Young, the list goes on and on. And a lot of the musicians who performed songs, they expressed their opposition to the Vietnam War, which was a sentiment that was... Uh, shared by uh, by the vast majority of the youth um, during the 1960s. Um, So yeah, it goes down in the history books as a definitive moment um, and a definitive attitude of the 1960s. So 50 years later, um, Woodstock uh, is now trying to be revived. Uh, One of the original founders of Woodstock, Michael Lang, he is heading this project and he told um i think rolling stone or something in january early january the beginning of this year um he describes that woodstock is now going to have a more electric bill of current generation and classic rock artists or acts so allegedly There are going to be acts such as Jay-Z, The Killers, Chance the Rapper, Black Keys, Halsey, Robert Plant, Miley Cyrus. And then there are going to be some acts that actually took part in the 1969 festival, um, such as Canned Heat and Hot Tuna, Dead & Company, Santana, etc. These are allegedly the lineup or some of the artists that are going to appear at the 50th anniversary of Woodstock. But there is a lot of things going wrong. So basically, um, because a major promotional company such as Live Nation or AEG isn't directly involved with the festival, uh, the risk in terms of the festival, and people are so wary because of Fire Festival, that a lot of the major talent agencies representing these artists demanded 100% of the artist's fees paid up front. Um, and some of the reps said that they received payment weeks, um, you know, before March, uh, a lot of them didn't see a single cent until millions of dollars were wired through two various agencies on March 4th of this year. And that is just the tip of the iceberg. So they were supposed to release tickets, um, I believe April 22nd. 
And then on April 19th, just three days before uh, 50 tickets, oh, sorry, not 50 tickets. Sorry, I'm reading my notes. Not 50, Woodstock 50 tickets were supposed to be going on sale. An email goes out to the agent stating that the on-sale date has been postponed, immediately triggering cancellation rumors. And so, yeah, that is... That is not even it. I mean, just this last Friday, uh, or no, I'm reading my notes. I don't think that, not this last Friday, but also after this, um, if it was turned out that the organizers didn't necessarily have a mass gathering permit from the New York State uh, Department of Health, I still don't think they have it. And the big main news that is happening now is that Dentsu Aegis Network, uh, it is a Japanese advertising company that was financing Woodstock. They basically pulled out and issued a statement saying that Woodstock was canceled. So the organizers of Woodstock ended up taking them to court and it was ultimately ruled that Dentsu did not have the rights to announce the festival's cancellation. So it is allowed to continue. It is a flame that is still flickering. Um, the, I guess, tricky thing is that Woodstock was trying to say that Dentsu still had to give them the money. The judge ended up ruling that Dentsu did not have to return the money to the organizers. So they are still a bit short. Now... The latest, latest news, um, just this Monday, June 10th, I believe, um, it was announced that Watkins Glen International Racetrack has backed out as the venue. So um, the managing organizer of the festival told CNN in a statement, we confirm that we will not be moving forward with Watkins Glen as the venue for Woodstock 50. We are in discussions with another venue to host Woodstock 50 on August 16th to 18th and look forward to sharing the new location when tickets go on sale in the coming weeks. So yeah. Um, it is less than 70 days. Um, what is it? A month? They have uh, maybe two months left and uh, they still haven't sold any tickets. They still haven't figured out what their venue is going to be. Um, the uncertainty and drama that has surrounded this concert is escalating and it is still going on. Um, and yeah, to make matters worse, um, I, uh, CID Entertainment uh, pulled out of its agreement to produce the festival and yeah, the Department of Health uh, retracted its permit application and so yeah, it sounds like it's definitely not going to happen but the organizers of the festival are saying that it still will. So only time will tell uh, what's going to happen. And just to wrap this up in a nice little bow, um, I think the comparison of Woodstock to Fire Festival and saying that Woodstock is going to be the next Fire Festival is a bit of a clickbait title. Because with Fire Festival, people were hoodwinked up until ticket goers, attendees were in the Bahamas then they realized how much of a scam it was and with Woodstock there it, it's not going to be like that it obviously is not going to be like that because people are already skeptical of it before tickets are even going out on sale 
And so there is no way, in my opinion, that it is going to be the big disaster that Fire Festival was. If anything, it just won't happen. Um, and so, yeah, the reason why Fire Festival was so, um, I guess, uh, con artist-y was on part the social media post, um, on part the marketing team, on part Billy's um, charismatic attitude. Um, people didn't really know or grasp that this could be as bad as it turned out. And I think a big part of it is the legitimacy and the fact that people paid so much money already. Tickets were already being sold. And so people kind of didn't want to waste their money. And so they believed that it was going to happen. And I think that is kind of just like a basic marketing factor or tactic is, you know, you pay 50 up front and that like locks your place in. That's like been a thing since forever. I'm sounding so... But yeah, so like think about it. Like if you have an appointment with someone or you're doing a deal with somebody, you put money down in the beginning, 50% up front, 50 cent, 50% after the deal is done. It, it once once money gets involved, it feels very very real. And so because the tickets were sold and people spent so much money on those charge wristbands, they had no choice but to go or just waste all that money. And so, yeah, I think that is a, another, maybe one of the bigger reasons, along with social media, that Fire Festival turned out uh, the way it did. Um, yeah, I don't think Woodstock is going to be the next Fire Festival. Um, in fact, um, it it might be become a hero hero story. You know, they prevail and persevere. A callback to its its first origin and its beginning, and its inspirational, heartwarming tale of a festival that defined a counterculture, um, um, I guess, memento or this counterculture idea of the 1960s going on into the 1970s of the youth culture. Um, at the end of the day, it sort of uh, goes back to the old saying of fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. So because Fire Festival has already happened, there is no way, in my opinion, that Woodstock is going to be, is going to follow the events um, that Fire Festival did. Um, that being said, it, it is still really uncertain and really kind of unlikely that it's going to happen because they have to go through a lot more steps. They really have to get everything planned out before they go and sell tickets because they don't want to have the same thing happen to them that happened to Billy McFarlane and the organization, organize, organize, can't talk, organizers of the Fire Festival and how they are being sued at the Wazoo. They don't want that to happen. And so um, I'm rooting for the Woodstock Festival. It is iconic. It has been 50 years. And it's such a nice and round and beautiful number. 50 years. You have to do something for the 50th anniversary, right? Uh, but at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter. Um, if it doesn't happen this year, it can happen next year. Or how about this? 55th anniversary of Woodstock. There you go. Another nice... Uh, pretty number and maybe they'll have more time to really plan it 
All right, uh, that was my little rant about music festival <laughs> music festivals today. Um, we're gonna take a short, sincere shout out break, guys. I haven't done this in a while, actually. So um, we're gonna take a short, sincere shout out break. Um, this is where quote unquote advertisements will go if I ever get advertisements. I highly doubt it, um, but I still love talking about products, and so I will. Uh, so yeah. Stay tuned. Uh, after the short, sincere shout out break, I will be going over my media obsessions and then wrapping up the podcast. So stay tuned. All right. So this sincere shout out is going to go to my favorite, all time favorite perfume. Uh, it is a high fashion brand, so I doubt they will ever sponsor me, but I really, really love this perfume. It is from Chloe. Um, they're one of my favorite high fashion brands as well. Uh, the style is very wanderlust, I have to say, and their perfume Nomad is literally my go-to scent. Like I will never buy another perfume, high-end perfume other than this one. And so I got introduced to it because I was looking for a perfume. I went to Sephora and literally smelled every perfume there and to the point where my nose was cluttered. I didn't even know what to purchase anymore. And so I just grabbed this one. And so so the scent of this is very, um, I wouldn't say musky, but it's very ambery, very warm toned. For me personally, I don't really like the floral, very sweet smelling perfumes. I love that amber quality. And that is the quality that Chloe Nomad has. Um, I, I really like sort of the unisex flavor of perfumes and scents. I mean, I even, I, I love using like the Dove's Men body wash. Like I just like that um, um, sort of manly unisex smell. And so, yeah, if you want to check it out, I highly recommend it. It is a bit pricey though. So just a fair warning, it is a high luxury perfume. Um, another perfume brand that I really like that is a bit on the um, mid-range level is actually Ed Hardy. So I don't necessarily know what this perfume is called. It is in a pink bottle and you can get I think like three fluid ounces for like 30 bucks um, on Amazon. Uh, I got it a really long time ago in high school from a friend for like my birthday and yeah, I just recently re-got it because I just remembered how good it smelled and yeah, it still smells pretty good. It has that same warm quality. It doesn't smell exactly like Chloe Nomad, but I do really like it and that's kind of just my uh, quick perfume. Um, I, I only use Chloe Nomad really for like special occasions. So yeah, if you, if you, if you want to give it a try, I highly recommend so yeah, back to the podcast. Okay, so my latest media obsessions. Uh, let's go ahead and go through books. Uh, first of all, I finished the Artemis Fowl series finally. Um, like I said before in a previous podcast, I loved the Artemis Fowl series as a kid and I read up to the first five books and then I stopped reading um, after the last three books came out. So Rebought them, reread them as an adult, loved, loved the ending. So, uh, with Artemis Fowl, uh, the reason why I like the book series so much is that it really progresses with the age of the reader, I feel like, because the first three books are very, um, 
I would even say a bit lighthearted, a bit actiony, go lucky kind of thing. And once it hits to the fourth book, it gets really dark. People die, things happen that are the the stakes get higher and higher. And with the last book, it is literally apocalypse, end of the world type of drama. And um, yeah, the ending is crazy good, crazy amazing. The thing I like about um, Ian Colfer. Ian Colfer is the fact that uh, he he brings up something in the beginning of the book in terms of the Artemis Fowl. He brings up something in the beginning of the book of the Artemis Fowl series that ends up in some weird roundabout way ends up solving and fixing the problem towards the end of the book. So I don't want to get rid of get give away a lot of things because if you want to read them, I highly recommend reading them. But yeah, that's something I notice about each and every book is that. Something in the beginning always ends up coming back, something in the end, and it is just so good and so sweet. And the end of the last book is perfect. I don't want to give it away, but it is, it literally ties everything up in a nice little bow and makes you want to reread the whole series again. So, yeah. In terms of music, it, um, and I've been kind of going, music and TV, kind of going old school. So Ed Sheeran is one of my all-time favorite artists. I would say even like my favorite favorite artist. Um, but the only album that I really religiously listen to is his first album, actually. Uh, that's the one that really, like I, I've loved Ed Sheeran before he became this major pop star. Like I literally bought his EPs in CD form because I wanted to listen to Cold Coffee, which was on his EP. Now all of it is on Spotify. So, and I don't even have, a CD player anymore except for in my car but yeah I've been kind of re-listening to the first album I think it's his best album and yeah um, I'm trying to actually learn uh, one of his songs on the piano so I'll let you know how that goes haven't really started that yet but that is the goal and then in terms of TV, I've been re-watching How I Met Your Mother. I can definitely say uh, How I Met Your Mother is my all-time favorite TV show. A lot of people say The Office or Parks and Rec or Arrested Development, etc. That sort of new age humor that doesn't have a laugh track. But yeah, How I Met Your Mother, I don't know. It just, it's always been a favorite of mine, even though the last few seasons are not that great. Uh, even, if, even though the last few seasons are not that great, I would still, if I was on a deserted island and for some odd reason I could only pick one TV show to watch for the rest of my life, it'd be How Much Your Mother. It's just, I don't know, it's clever, it's uh, it's an easy watch, it is, uh, I, it is, yeah, it's just comfortable, it's my comfort show. So I've been re-watching that, almost done actually, I'm on the last season. Uh, last season, I'm on the episode, uh, the best episode, I think, of the seri- of the whole series is How How Your Mother Met Me. That's the title of the episode. And it basically brings all the callbacks throughout the whole season and just kind of shows it from the mother's perspective. And it is iconic. It really ties everything very nicely together. Um, other TV, I guess recent TV that I've been watching is The Amazing Race. I am literally committed to this. This is like my Game of Thrones. I watch it every week religiously because uh, my DVR doesn't record for some reason. So I literally have to go old school and like every Wednesday, uh, eight to seven central. <laughs> and so every Wednesday at 7 p.m., I have sat down and watched each episode and they are in their top five now. And my favorite team, uh, Tyler Oakley and Corey Cool, they have gotten first in like the last three um, legs of the race. And so I 
don't know if they win a million dollars that'd be so crazy like I am rooting for them so hard if they would have gotten eliminated I probably wouldn't be watching this show as religiously as I do uh, they have a great podcast called psychobabble y'all should go check it out Last but not least, uh, I have been, I've discovered a new podcast, Justin Long. He's an amazing actor. I used to have a big crush on him when I was like super, super, like he, I think he was like my first um, like celebrity crush because I just really liked, because um, on Comedy Central, they always played his movies, like Waiting was one of the movies. And then there's another, like Accepted, I think was the other movie. Um, now he's like in his 40s or late 30s or something. So uh, yeah, that shows how old I am. But yeah, he has a new podcast called Life is Short, and it is really good. He uh, he interviews uh, famous celebrities and kind of talks about their life and asks them really cool questions. And yeah, I just love Justin Long so much. So I, I may I may be a little bit biased with the podcast, but it's really good. The Neil Patrick episode, Neil Patrick Harris episode was really good. So he plays Barney on How I Met Your Mother, and he's done a lot of iconic stuff. And um, it's really cool to see his actual personality he's a bit of like a flirty like um I don't know uh like like uh <laughs> how do I describe this like flirty um kind of dirty humor I feel like is the best way I can describe it but yeah that interview is really good and then he did another interview with Olivia Wilde and yeah that interview was also really good they were they they were really close and it's cool to see that the, the how close they are as friends and he was actually in her for first short film that she directed and they went on to talk about her new movie that is out in theaters right now and it's called book smart and i watched it yesterday uh with one of my best friends and it is a laugh out loud amazing teen high school movie it is so good so I'm 24 years old so this is definitely not even in my demographic anymore I'm I, I graduated high school in like 2012 but it, it is such oh I almost hit my mic it is such a good story uh there's twists there's turns and it, it feels it doesn't feel cliche or stereotypical and it feels like the humor is great the ending is great it is uh, I am completely blown away um that Olivia Wilde's dick directorial debut was this amazing I'm shocked and it was kind of interesting in the podcast how they're talking about because she is so beautiful like stunningly beautiful people don't necessarily think about um her, I guess her genuine personality or her 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 brains or her smartness because like all they see is the beauty and so I think Justin was talking about how when he first met her he was kind of I mean he was dancing around dancing around and he wasn't just like oh my god you were so beautiful and I didn't blah, blah. he was kind of like yeah you just had this beauty about you so I didn't really know your real personality and then I think I had that perception of Olivia Wilde as well because I didn't really know her very well but I knew some of the movies I knew what she looked like but I didn't know her actual personality and after listening to the podcast, she is so genuine, so nice, and so intelligent, and so smart, and after watching Booksmart, I cannot wait for the next thing that she directs. So uh, in terms of a synopsis, so the log line for Booksmart is basically like, uh, I think like straight A students um, go like give no Fs, like straight A students give no, I don't want to say the bad word, but you know what I'm talking about. So basically it's about these two high school girls who spent their whole high school career basically 
being in the books, going to the library, studying so they could get into good schools. And now when high school is officially over, they wanted to pack in a, you know, four years of partying and being young and fun into one incredible night. And that is all I'm going to say about, oh, well, okay. And that's all I'm going to say about the plot of the movie. In terms of the, the characters, um, it's really cool because they're not your stereotypical nerdy, quiet, shy girls. They are very outspoken, very, um, I guess, powerful and proud in who they are. And they know that they're nerds, but they don't care. And um, that is something that I really admire and I really think is telling of today's generation, today's generation who cares about the environment more than those in charge, those who are growing up in the Me Too movement, um, in, you know, LGBTQ uh, equality and fairness. Um, I think that is very, very awesome. And another awesome thing is the fact that the other, uh, I guess, supporting characters you know, typically in a stereotypical high school movie, you see one side and the others is just the, the bully. They're the evil character. And while there are bullies and evil characters, I mean, it's high school. Every, uh, after all, high school is full of gossip and bullying. But these girls end up realizing that their classmates, um, they aren't the, they, you know, there's the jock, there is the pretty girl, but they have sides and stories to them as well. And I think the movie does a really great job portraying the other characters and lending sympathy to the other characters and allowing the two main character girls to really understand and know their classmates and respect them. Something that they didn't necessarily really do in the beginning of the movie. And that is all I'm going to say about that. So yeah, uh, I apologize for being gone for so long. Um, thanks for being patient with me. And yeah, uh, if you want, you can stay uh, after the outro song, as always, to hear me recite a poem. And until next time, love y'all. Thanks for listening. Hope you have a daisyish day. Hello, my poetry enthusiast field daisies. Today's poem is going to be a short one, but a good one. This is one of my all-time favorite poems, and it is the benefits of ignorance. And so I think it really ties nicely with today's episode because a lot of the people that went to Fire Festival were pretty ignorant and they got bit, bit in the butt for it. So, but yeah, this is kind of a poem about the benefits of ignorance. And so, yeah. Let's do it without further ado. Let's go. The Benefits of Ignorance by Hal Sirowitz. If ignorance is bliss, father said, shouldn't you be looking blissful? You should check to see if you have the right kind of ignorance. If you're not getting the benefits that most people get from acting stupid, then you should go back to what you always were, being too smart for your own good.